Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home, marveling at what had happened. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now. Fill this room with your presence. May each of us hear your voice, your message for us. Work powerfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as Luke talked about last week on Palm Sunday, the beginning of Easter week, the previous Sunday, Jesus rides into into Jerusalem on a colt as tens of thousands of people cheer. There were, during Passover, a couple hundred thousand extra people were in town and they were all coming in together. The whole city is in an uproar ready to make Jesus king. The religious leaders already have it in for Jesus. But he deliberately antagonizes them that week. He shames them publicly. He calls them hypocrites, blind fools, whitewashed tombs. With Judas's help, they arrest him and put him on trial. But they can't even get the witnesses they're paying to agree about what he said. So Jesus helps them out and says exactly what they need to be able to convict him of blasphemy. Always remember. Jesus goes to his death on purpose. No one takes his life from him against his will. He voluntarily lays it down. Jesus is mocked, he's tortured, he's crucified. And although that physical torture that he suffered would have been horrible, it's not what hurt him the most. As the prophet Isaiah had said several centuries before, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What hurt most was that he was experiencing the punishment that the sins of all humans for all time deserved. He took our punishment for us, to heal us so that we could be forgiven and become part of God's family forever. On the cross, the eternal divine Son of God died. They seal him in a tomb. It's guarded by probably around 60 armed soldiers. The disciples are afraid. They go into hiding. And then comes Sunday, Easter Sunday. 
There's a violent earthquake. An angel rolls away the stone covering the tomb. Battle-hardened soldiers shake in fear like leaves on the ground. Later they run away. Several of Jesus' followers who are women come to the tomb. They've come to put spices on his body as was their custom. They find the tomb empty. They talk with some angels who tell them that Jesus has come back to life. But when they run back and tell the disciples, the disciples don't believe them. But Peter and John run to the tomb. They also find it empty. They, they leave. Mary Magdalene's there. She sees two angels in the tomb. Jesus comes and speaks with her. Meanwhile, Jesus has also appeared to some of the other women. Later that day, he meets with Peter. On, in the evening, early hours, he walks with two other men on a road to a place called Emmaus. When they realize who it is, they run back to Jerusalem. They're there in a locked room with the other disciples, and Jesus appears in their midst. Thomas isn't there when they tell him he doesn't believe them. But a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas, and then he believes. Later, Jesus meets with seven of the disciples while they're fishing at the Sea of Galilee. He meets with 11 disciples on the mountain. At one point, he meets with 500 people at one time. He appears to his brother James, his half-brother, to the apostles again, and after 40 days, he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. These disciples go from cowering in fear after the crucifixion to courageous heroes, most of whom will give up their life for what they believe. They do it because they know they've seen Jesus alive after he was crucified. Do you believe that? Does it ever seem to you like not that many people still believe? After the communists took over Russia, they were squelching Christianity. And in the early 20s, Nikolai Bukharin, a communist leader, was sent from Moscow to Kiev to speak at an anti-God rally. For an hour, he ridiculed the Christian faith, and then he said, anybody have any questions? And a Russian Orthodox priest asked if he could speak, and he stood up and turned to the crowd. Are you ready? He just said, he is risen. risen And that's the response he got. Sometimes it seems like not that many people still believe in Jesus. But I was surprised to read that a 2015 survey said that 77% of Americans believe in the resurrection. I wouldn't have thought that. Last fall was the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation period. And so we did a series here of a number of uh, messages on that and the ramifications and the beliefs of it. But as I prepared, it had a profound impact on me and on my, in a number of ways, but also especially on my attitude toward the American church. Let me explain. Before the Reformation, Roman Catholicism in Western Europe, everybody was Roman Catholic, and um, people really liked being Roman Catholics. People were re- renovating cathedrals and doing all kinds of things to show their support of Roman Catholicism. Everyone considered themselves to be a Christian, so that would be the whole group, but it was only a very small fraction of the whole group that was able to get very engaged in their faith. See, unless you were rich or clergy, you had no access to a Bible, and you couldn't read anyway. And you only took communion and confessed once a year around Easter. Couldn't understand the worship services. They were in Latin. The vast majority of the population was just very minimally engaged. 
this is what the uh, historians call passive Christianity. Now, after the Reformation, the Roman Catholics made a lot of positive changes. They really upped their game. Their priests got a lot more training and had to be more moral and all kinds of things that were very positive. And a somewhat larger portion of the population became more engaged. Remember, then, if your country was Catholic, pretty much everybody was Catholic. It was Protestant, pretty much everybody was. There was some sorting out of that during the Reformation period. In the Protestant countries, people were even more engaged, a larger portion than in the Roman Catholic ones. People could now own their own Bibles because of the printing press, and more and more people were becoming literate and reading their Bibles and engaging in worship and getting involved and doing lots of of good things to help people. The percentage of the population strongly engaged in their faith in the countries, in the Protestant countries, was much higher than it had been before the Reformation. Now, fast forward to America today. 39% of Americans would say that they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today. That's roughly the same amount of people that are in church on a typical Sunday, not Easter, but on a typical Sunday. Some years ago, Gallup did a study showing that about 13% of Americans are very engaged in following Jesus. He also showed that in their circle of influence, they have a huge positive impact, much more than other people, and that they feel more fulfilled and are happier than the people that aren't so engaged. Isn't that interesting? Now, before our series last fall, I was always kind of grumpy and disappointed. Only 13% are engaged. My glass was half empty. But after studying the Reformation period, I now realize that among all the... There are some small countries that are exceptions, but for any country this size with this kind of diversity, this is probably the highest level of serious engagement with Christ in Christian history. So now I see my glass is half full. 13% is being seriously engaged. It's more than other places. And it equals roughly 43 million people seriously engaged as followers of Jesus. They're having a big positive impact in their circle of influence, and they're feeling much more fulfilled and happier in general than the rest of the population. But if 77% believe in the resurrection and 13% are highly engaged, what is keeping the other 64% or 211 million people from getting involved? Because they generally believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe He died for them on the cross. They believe He rose from the dead, but they're not involved. Why? Well, let's come back to that. First, I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul writes in his chapter that deals mostly with the resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about Jesus appearing to various people. He talks about how the resurrection is central to our faith. If it didn't happen, it's all a bunch of baloney, but it did happen. He writes about how the resurrection means that all of Jesus' followers will receive immortal, perfect, physical bodies. And then he writes... When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, the resurrection means that death has been overcome for us, that death does not win. It has lost its sting because we're simply going to lose these bodies and get immortal, perfect ones. When I was in college, I drove a Studebaker. For those of you who are young, it had long uh, gone bankrupt before I ever got the car. You couldn't get parts. And so when the uh, handle to roll up the passenger window broke, I just tied a rope to the bottom of the window so I could pull it up and down and put a little boat cleat there and would tie it off, and that was good. We're good to go. And when the trunk lock dropped, broke, we just popped it out, and you just put a finger into the uh, place there. You lift it up, and I put a padlock and a hasp on the trunk door. And when it was cold in the winter and we had to start the car, one of us would get out, take off the air cleaner, close the butterfly valve to the choke, turn over the engine, we'd start it, we'd put it all back together and go. So when I graduated from college, I got a job, and I bought a one-year-old car, and it did not sting at all to get rid of the Studebaker. I gave it to a lucky college guy that had been in my small group in high school. The older I get, the more excited I get about trading this in. You know, at the previous service, they didn't laugh. Little boy and his father were driving down a country road on a beautiful day when all of a sudden a bumblebee flew in the window of the car and was buzzing around. Now the kid was actually incredibly allergic to bees and he's panicking and the father reached out and grabbed the bumblebee and squeezed. And then he let it go and it started flying around the car again and the kid started panicking and the father said, Hold his, held his hand out in front of the kid's face because the stinger was in his palm. He said, I took the sting for you. It's a beautiful story. Father did a beautiful, painful thing. I still remember when I was four-year-old, I can picture myself on the sidewalk near my house, ice plant, purple plant, reached out and I grabbed a bumblebee. And the searing, stabbing pain. And I ran to my mother and cried. Yes, I did run to my mother and cry. But the father in the car did a beautiful, painful thing when he grabbed the bee so his son wouldn't get the sting. And Jesus did a beautiful thing when he took the sting of death for us, conquering death for us. It was very heroic of Jesus. It was very beautiful. Now, obviously, the great artist Michelangelo, he cared about beauty. And he was surprised how much all the artists of his day were always doing all the art about the crucifixion. And so one time, to fellow artists, he said, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures on the one theme of Christ in weakness, Christ on the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead? Why do you concentrate on the passing episode as if it were the last work, as if the curtain dropped on him with disaster and defeat? That dreadful scene lasted a few hours. But to the unending eternity, Christ is alive. The stone has been rolled away and he rules and reigns and triumphs. Ever spent much time thinking about the beauty of Jesus? We just finished today's last one of a series on that. And so I've been thinking a lot about it in recent months and Christ's compassion and his forgivingness and his power, the way he surprises and astounds and restores and heals and encourages. And of course, his sacrificial death, notwithstanding Michelangelo, his sacrificial death on the cross is, is beautiful and valiant. But can you imagine how beautiful he is now resurrected in heaven at the right hand of the Father? What do you think? When you think about Jesus and his beauty, are, are, are you impressed? 
are you stunned? I'm sometimes stunned. I go, wow, he's so patient with me or so forgiving. He's, he's, encur- he's powerful, encouraging, so heroic. Is Jesus your hero? Any, any fans of the Warriors here? Don't have to raise your hand. Just, just, you just nod. Just a subtle nod. That's the way Presbyterians do it. Um, any of you, know if none of you are old enough to have been fans of the 49ers back in Joe Montana's day? No? Oh, those are some very exuberant hands. Okay. Who do you root for? Who impresses you? Um, who are your heroes? Why do most of us even have heroes? Why are fans of some highly successful why are we fans of some highly successful and accomplished people, whether they're athletes or movie stars or singers or entrepreneurs? Well, we were created by God to appreciate heroic accomplishments. Now, in the ancient world, that, yeah, there was some arts and stuff, but that really meant almost one thing. You went out and killed people and conquered their territory, and that was what was heroic. Jesus turned that on its head. Because he comes and he dies for his enemies to pay for their sins, win their hearts, and transform enemies into family. Amazingly heroic and, self, heroic and self-sacrificing. Totally changed the definition of heroism. Does that attract you? Are you impressed by Jesus? Do you find him beautiful? Are you impressed enough for him to be your greatest hero? He heroically conquers his enemies by dying for them. He overcomes evil with good, he defines true heroism. And by conquering death, he makes it so that death is no longer a threat to you. It frees us up to join him on a hero's journey where we can join forces walking side by side with him, empowered with him, and also be used to help overcome evil with good. We're now going to follow up with the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. We left off right before it, where Paul explains some consequences of the sting of death being gone. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. When you join forces with Jesus to overcome evil with good, your labor is not in vain. Everything you do, even the smallest things you do, from changing a diaper to washing dishes to helping a homeless person to whatever, even the smallest thing you do in love is significant. See, Judah, Jesus is a beautiful, humble hero, and he offers all of his followers the opportunity to follow him on a, her, on a hero's journey and become like him. Now, most of us, we desire, a, especially for our kids, but also for us, kind of a comfortable, mostly pain-free life, certainly with no devastating disappointments. But many of you in this room are old enough to know now that everyone you know gets devastating disappointments, including you. Life cannot be heroic without adversity. The devil wants you to become angry or bitter toward God because of pain and adversity and experience your pain apart from God. And then make what we often do, foolish choices of temporary gratification that just make it worse. Because Jesus died and then conquered death, if we choose to follow him, he actually guarantees that your adversity, what hurts and what is done by evil to you, he will turn the tables on it and make it come out 
for your good. And he proved it by doing it with the cross, which was the most evil thing ever done, nailing the Son of Man to the cross. He gives us the power to make better choices. And boy, are we grateful looking back. So let's go back to our earlier question. Why are over 200 million Americans who believe in the resurrection not deeply engaged in following Jesus? Well, first, what does it look like to be deeply engaged in following Jesus? It looks like gradually becoming like him. If we love him, we want to become like him. More loving, quicker to forgive, less worry, slower to anger, patient, gentle, self-sacrificing. Does that kind of inner transformation just automatically happen? Well, it depends. It happens when we deeply engage with Jesus and other people. His followers, also people who aren't yet his followers. See, down through the centuries, the followers of Jesus have found they needed to be intentional about engaging deeply with their faith and with Christ by developing habits that help them engage. If, if you want healthy teeth, what do you do? And? Thank you. <laughs> Took my wife years to get me to floss. If you want a healthy body, what do you do? Eat, eat, eat in a healthy manner and exercise regularly and so forth. Um, if you want to engage with Jesus and people, then we develop habits like talking with him every day. We call it prayer and listening to him in prayer and also listening to him by studying the, word he's, the, the document he's given us, the Bible. We get in a support group with other followers of Jesus. We become a good ambassador to people who aren't yet followers of Jesus. We worship weekly with each other. We develop the habit of giving generously of our money and of our time. And that, right there, I think is a big part of the reason why 200 million people in this country who believe in the resurrection are not very engaged with Jesus. It takes time. Cannot know Jesus well and become like him without spending time with him, serving alongside him, talking with him in prayer, studying his love letter to you, which we call the Bible. We are now such a prosperous nation that perhaps for the first time in history, most of us value our time more than our money. Engaging effectively with Jesus actually means we develop the habit of giving generously of both our money and our time, but the problem isn't the money. It's giving our time that's the biggest stumbling block. Now in this church, there is a wonderful, good-sized group of people that are very seriously engaged with Jesus, and they're experiencing transformation and excited and having a big impact. They meet in small groups, they serve, they study, they pray, they're generous, if you are not, and Easter is one of those couple times a year when, you know, people come and you're here because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You're here because you believe he died for you. You're here because you believe he rose from the dead like the rest of the 77%, but you just haven't gotten engaged. And it's probably because of time. Just... Too much going on, just no gumption left over, just too, one more thing, just not enough perceived value. The story is told of Satan putting on a contest for the other demons. 
And he says he wants them to come up with the best strategy for making believers of Jesus either destroying their faith or making them completely ineffective. And so he has a committee that kind of whittles down the different proposals, the different strategies, down to three finalists. The first finalist gets up and all the demons are there. Not you guys, but just just picture it. And the the first finalist gets up and he says that the key is to get people addicted to something, to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography. Then they'll become enslaved. They might even lose their faith. And all of the demons start kind of hissing their approval and cackling with glee. But after thinking for a moment, Satan says, unfortunately, it's often when people are at the end of themselves that they are finally filled with sorrow and repent. And then the Son of God forgives them and fills them with transforming power. We see that happen all the time. We need a better strategy. So the second finalist went to the podium and he said, the best way to make people ineffective is to make them prosperous. Give them houses and cars and fine food and expensive clothes and fancy vacations. Then they will feel they don't really need God and they'll be happy without him. And once again, the demons assembled, hissed, and cackled their approval. But Satan said, haven't we seen over and over that prosperity cannot satisfy them? Eventually, they realize there must be something more, and that is precisely when the Son of God has an annoying habit of stepping in and showing them how to find peace and meaning with him. No, it must be something more subtle. And the third finalist went to the podium. He said, my dear colleagues, we are talking about people who believe that the Son of God gave his life for them, that he rose from the dead and that he loves them. On some some level, they admire the Son of God. They may even want to become like him. Don't fight it. Encourage it. And the demons started barking and coughing and getting enraged and silence, Satan said. I want to hear the rest. And the last finalist continued. Encourage it, I say. Whisper in the ear that, of course, they love the Son of God. Of course, they want to become like Him. And of course, they will pray and serve others and study their Bibles. They'll just do it tomorrow. Tomorrow. Always. Tomorrow. And at first, there was silence. And then, as understanding dawned on them, the demons hissed and cackled and stomped the floor with approval and then carried out the winner on their shoulders. Many of you are very engaged. It's wonderful, wonderful to watch as your lives are changing and all the wonderful things you do. But for those of you who are not, make a choice today, not tomorrow, to engage deeply with Jesus, to develop just some obvious spiritual habits and ones that will help you engage with Jesus and his followers and be an ambassador to those who aren't. And we'd love, if you live around here, we'd love to help with that and engage. We have lots of people that are doing that. What we do, we have a record number signed up for going to our high school houseboats trip this summer. And when they come back, our staff says, Pick, says stick six. And what they mean by that is it's so easy when you come back from something as marvelous as the houseboats just to get back into the rhythm of life. And they say, instead of doing that, stick six, six weeks, get involved. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in our, our, our meetings. Come to worship. And that's what I would say to you today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Stick six. Make the decision today. 
Come back on Sundays. Get in, we have an alpha thing coming. It's on your bulletin on the back. Get involved in a, in a small group. Start reading your Bible for five minutes every day for six weeks. See the difference that it makes. Don't wait until tomorrow. Jesus died for you. He conquered death for you. He loves you. Make a conscious choice to love him back by engaging deeply. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we, we just feel like we don't have the energy sometimes. We don't have the time. We don't have... We don't perceive the value. We, we've tried it in the past and it didn't work out. Lord, would you please help us get rid of our excuses that we might make you our hero and engage and experience tremendous joy and transformation. Help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. Jesus conquered death for you. There's no sting in death. You get to upgrade to a perfect, immortal body. And in this life, when you hit adversity, he'll even redeem that. Paul writes, We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, Will he not also give us all things with him? All the power you need, all the gumption you need, all the miracles you need, everything you need to join Jesus in the hero's journey of overcoming evil with good. And now be filled with all the power of the Holy Spirit you need that you might not postpone to tomorrow, engaging with Christ today, that you might have all the energy and the time and the motivation you need. Be filled with God's spirit. God bless you. Go in peace. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.